Ladies and gentlemen, attention everyone. Welcome to No Picks After Dark. It's your boy Nick Burke, and you are now tuned in to the hottest podcast in the world with Aaron Dante, giving you the hottest interviews with the dopest people, sharing their experiences from your neighborhood all around to the world. Voted Best Baltimore Podcast by you, the listeners. Now, your host, Aaron Dante. Yo, Aaron, talk to him. Welcome to the No Picks After Dark Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante. And today we have our main man, the one number one number one comedian in Baltimore City and all over Baltimore Metropolitan. My main man, Ivan Martin. What's going on today, brother? Man, I am doing beautiful, man. We're out here trying to celebrate things, man. Once again, just coming off of Valentine's Day, everybody being beautiful, man. Just want to keep it in the sense of Black History Month. So you know I like to have a little bit of fun with some facts. You know what I'm saying? So I want to throw it back right now, man. You remember the character Betty Boop? Yes, yes, Betty Boop. I remember her. Yeah, okay, man. So that cute little white girl was based off of a real jazz singer by the name of Esther Jones. And her vocals Mm. were the same thing. Boop, boop, a dupe. A hundred percent. Now... I know for a fact, the funniest thing I thought of as soon as I seen this is, do you know how many people got this tattooed on them? This is like the equivalent of black people getting Chinese letters placed on them that say teriyaki chicken. I got one. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful, man. Like, so every time you see a teriyaki chicken tattoo, you just know somebody else got a Betty boot tattoo. You know what I'm saying? It's like, a hundred percent now moving on moving on another beautiful thing stock market going crazy people betting on this betting on that people going on these websites creating all types of stuff messing up the hedge funds there's a gentleman that was a billionaire that says these young people that are poor are just trying to rob wealthy folks I was like isn't that something because did you know the wealthiest man in the world ever and still in history, according to Bloomberg's billionaire, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, wish they had the money he had. In 14th century, he was the ruler of the Mali Empire. And the gentleman's name was Mansa Musa. Mm. Till this day still. So, of course, a black man. So just know that, you know, no matter what, we still on top. Things are happening. Things are happening. I'm going to set it off right now and end it with something real fun. So, <laughs> 1815, of course, slavery was happening and things of that sort. It was a gentleman by the name of Samuel Smith that led a whole entire pack of other gentlemen. It was like three white guys. Another gentleman by the name of, uh, what's his name, what's his name? I don't want to mess them up. James Caesar, Anthony Smith. 1815, a gentleman by the name of Henry Box Brown. Now, the box name comes from something real cool because he just got tired of slavery in Virginia. And he decided to learn how the mail works. And he shipped himself to freedom in Philadelphia. And these two white guys helped him. Mm. They got caught in 1849. Mm. And to this day, all I can think about is 
that's the reason that people be sending drugs through the mail. It's in their blood. No, I'm joking. Yo, shout out to Black History. <laughs> shout out to Black History Facts, man. I want everybody to have a good time. Enjoy themselves, Valentine's man. Hey, I appreciate Mr. Ivan Martin. And where can we find you again on social media and all that good stuff? Comedian Ivan Martin. Every Wednesday night, you can follow me and check out my flyer. I do a live and virtual show. It's pretty fun. I cannot wait until we get back. I love you, Baltimore City. Thank you. Hey, please support the brother. Please support the brother. He's doing something amazing in Baltimore. Every Wednesday night, live. It's a great show. Please support him. And folks... We'll be right at the back after these messages. Visit your neighborhood sanctuary and do wellness for a luxurious experience for everybody. Treat yourself and a loved one with a massage, facial, or an entire day of pampering with our deluxe spa day packages that include lunch from the restaurant next door, fire and rice. For more information on booking or purchasing gift cards, visit their website at andowellness.com. Or call at 443-438-4048. They look forward to welcoming you and your loved ones to their beautiful new space at Soha Union, located at 4801 Harper Road, Suite 1. Folks, welcome back to No Picks at the Dark Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante, and I'm so happy that you're here with me today. And then we're back to Miss Natasha Axelrod, our lawyer, legal con- contributor, legal expert, I'm so happy you're back on the show again. How are you doing, Miss Natasha? I'm doing great, Aaron. How are you doing in Baltimore? Oh, uh, you know, we things are things are going. You know, it's a beautiful day here. It's a beautiful day. Um, good. Uh, yeah, things good. The sun is shining, but it's cold as hell. So <laughs> we're surviving. We're surviving. So what's going on? Tell us you what's going on with Natasha and Man. Like, what's what you got for us this week? All right, this week I just want to mention a little bit about the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Uh, We've got a new administration in Washington, and I'm going to give a little background on this because it's hopefully going to go to the forefront of of our Congress now. So this John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act was passed by the House of Representatives in December 2019. And then the week after Congressman Lewis passed away, it was renamed the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And This would ultimately restore the original Voting Rights Act of 1965. And what's kind of made all this, uh, what's what's really happened is that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was really gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013 in a Supreme Court decision. And the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is probably the most significant advancement in voting rights in our country because it sought to outlaw discriminatory practices that were still occurring despite the Reconstruction Amendments, which of course included the 15th Amendment. And the 15th Amendment provides, of course, that the right to vote shall not be denied on the basis of race. But after the passage of the 15th Amendment, that was still happening all the time. Um, discriminatory practices had continued. So the Voting Rights Act really sought to finally put some teeth in what was supposed to have happened almost a century earlier. And, you know, even though uh, it really took the Civil Rights Movement and Voting Rights Act. And so with this, it's important to note that voting rights are really complicated in our country. And 
I think people sometimes are surprised to hear that there's no explicit or express right to vote in the United States Constitution. It's not clearly in there. There's arguments that it's, you know, within some other provisions that it would be implied, but it's not expressly in the Constitution. And, and the Constitution also leaves voting mostly up to the states, which is by voting laws or qualifications vary by state. So even the amendments that deal with voting rights, people are like, yeah, but you know, these amendments, the 15th amendment granted the right to vote. The voting amendments didn't grant express affirmative rights. They really just limit what states can do in terms of deciding voting qualifications. So that's why this Voting Rights Act was so important. And what, what it really meant was that states that had a history of voter discrimination, they had to get what's called pre-clearance from the federal government before they can make changes to their voting laws or voting practices and procedures. And this pre-clearance requirement was really a key part of the law because it prohibited discrimination before it could occur. And it didn't just prohibit laws that discriminated outright, it also prohibited laws that had a discriminatory impact against minority voters. So this, this law was enormously successful and it's been renewed by Congress a bunch of times um, and it really helped to protect disenfranchised voters in these certain states. And there's data to back this up. But then 2013 happens, the Supreme Court case guts this pre-clearance requirement really. And what happened is multiple states, uh, particularly states in the South, have passed stricter voting laws since then. And even laws that had been previously struck down by the, the Voting Rights Act. And a common example of these types of laws are like strict photo ID laws. These laws disproportionately affect minorities and low income and elderly populations and can prevent voting in many instances. And so since 2013, this has been happening more because the real, you know, kind of, I don't, the real kind of heart and soul of the Voting Rights Act was this pre-clearance requirement prohibiting discrimination before it occurred. So the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act would basically restore what the original Voting Rights Act did and even improves it a little bit. And it updates the portion of the law that the Supreme Court struck down as unconstitutional. It had to do with the formula for determining what states were going to be the sub be subject to the preclearance. We may be asking, wait, this seems like it makes so much sense. Like, why wouldn't this have been changed? You know, the, the Supreme Court decision was 2013. Why hasn't it been changed yet? Well, of course, you've got your counter arguments and those that rally against uh, the Voting Rights Act are those that say, oh, we're just really trying to prevent voting fraud. And critics say, oh, we don't want too much federal oversight because yeah, there's federal oversight in this to make sure that discrimination is not occurring. But now with a democratic control of the Senate and a democratic president, there is a much better chance that the law will be passed. So Joe Biden has recently indicated, President Biden now, um, has recently indicated via a spokesperson that he does intend to work on passing this law. And, you know, people differ and there's all sorts of different arguments, but this is a very important law to protect voting rights. So hopefully we're going to see some changes in Washington. That is awesome. Oh, man, I love that. I love that about that. I'm so thank you for explaining that to us. And I'm sure the listeners will like that and they can tell and teaching other, their friends and family about that. So I appreciate you bringing that information up. Where can we find you on social media? Social media on Instagram, you can find me at, at Natasha underscore Axelrod. 
And on YouTube, my channel, I guess it's called a channel, right? It's called The Legal Blonde with Natasha Axelrod. Awesome. Awesome. All right, then, Ms. Ax, Ms. Natasha, I'm so excited that you're on the show. You're, people are loving your, 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 your little one minute of just knowledge. We really appreciate that. And you have fans out there now. So we, we're happy to have you on No Picture Dark Podcast. We really are. I am so happy to be a part of it. And I got to get to Baltimore one of these days. Got to, got to. Once, once we get this vaccine under right. control, oh. we want big reunion. But with that, yeah. Definitely. And without the, with that, after that, folks, we'll be right back after these messages. This portion of the episode is sponsored by Maggie's Farm, located at 4341 Harvard Road. Celebrate Valentine's Day at Maggie's Farm, featuring a three-course prefix menu for $55. Offering a unique menu for this special day that will include an amazing steak option, rockfish, handcraft cocktails, and many more delectable choices. Wine pairings for each course are available for just $20 more. Make this Valentine's Day unforgettable with Maggie's Farm Dining Experience. Open for dinner from 4 p.m. until 10 p.m. Wednesday through Saturday and serving brunch Saturday from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. and Sunday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Check out Maggie's Farm on Instagram and Facebook for daily and weekly food specials. And folks, we are back at the No Picks of the Dark podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante. I'm so happy you're here with me. We got one of my favorite new episodes on the show. I love this little spotlight. Um, this brother is doing big things. So Trevor White, VBS Tax and Accounting, holding it down, holding it down. I mean, he's been dropping so many jewels. I'm keeping my ass out of jail from this, man. I'm, I'm feeling good about myself. I got, I got, I got my lawyer on on one episode. Got the tax guy. I'm ready to go. So, without further ado, what's going on, Mr. Trevor? Wait, how you feeling today, sir? Hey, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. Getting ready. Getting prepped up for uh, for Friday, the big day. Um, you know, was is when tax season gets popped off. And today, I wanted to come on and talk to everybody about standard deduction versus itemized deduction. Everybody always wants to talk about well, what. What's the itemized deduction? And how come um, I don't itemize it? And I heard that I can't deduct charitable contributions anymore or or I can't deduct my mortgage. I just want to put out the misnomers about those today. So everybody is entitled to what they call a standard deduction. And that means when you file your taxes, you got your gross income and immediately your gross income is reduced by your standard deduction. In this year, for 2021 tax season, on your 2020 income, you can deduct $12,550 for a standard deduction. Well, okay, if I deduct the standard deduction, then what's itemized deduction? Here is the connection. You can take the standard deduction or you can take itemized deduction if the itemized deductions equal up to more than the standard deduction. So what are itemized deductions? Charitable contributions, mortgage interest, state taxes, and then also medical expenses, 10% of your AGI. We're not gonna get into all of that right now, but just know that medical expenses are also a part of it. Well, Trevor, what about stuff I buy for my job and school supplies? That in 2000, December 2017, the Tax Cuts and Job Act eliminated employee-related expenses. 
and it also doubled the amount of the standard deduction. So yes, you can still take your itemized deduction, but now it's a lot harder to itemize because your standard deductions have been doubled. So for a single person, your standard deduction is $12,550. For a head of household person, your standard deduction is $18,800. And then for married couple, married couples can deduct $25,000 of straight standard deduction. This is a limit that people have not seen before. So even if you don't itemize and you're a married couple, against your income, you can deduct $25,000 and you are entitled to that. It's not a credit. You don't have to qualify for it. Everybody walks in to get their taxes prepared. It can reduce their income by their standard deduction. So you know that. That's yours. We don't have exemptions anymore. Your state, you still have your exemption. But for the federal, December 2017, the exemption was eliminated. So now you just have your standard deduction. And if you qualify, you got your itemized deduction. So Add up all your receipts from your medical expenses, I tell everybody, bring in your mortgage interest, your state taxes. It's not limited, unlimited now. It's capped at 10,000. That's property taxes and income state taxes. You can only take up to 10,000, but if those things plus charitable contribution add up to more than um, 25,000 or 12,000 as a single person, 25,000 as a couple, then you could take the itemized deduction. Damn. <clears throat> you, you, you took me to church this morning. Hey, man, I wanted to come in, hit it quick, and let people know some things before they go and get their taxes done or what to look out for. I know there's a lot of confusion since 2017 about what was going on with the taxes. How come I can't itemize anymore? How come I can't deduct work-related expenses anymore? Well, that was because in December 2017, the Tax Cuts and Job Act gave people more standard deductions, so more people started receiving more in their check but it made it difficult for people to get itemized deductions. And that hurt people a little bit on their state uh, refund because if you don't itemize in Maryland, if you don't itemize for federal, you're not gonna itemize for the state. So when that bar was a little bit lower, more people were itemizing. There were more things that you can, um, that you can put into the calculation to itemize. The Fed said, nah, we're gonna get rid of that. We're gonna give you more in a standard and it didn't, across the country, it didn't reduce tax returns, but in the Northeast and larger tax states and higher income states, it did lower the refunds a little bit. Wow, wow. Folks, y'all might have to rewind this. You might have to rewind it, folks. Cause he's just dropped so much knowledge right now. I got my pen and my right hand writing things. I'm like, oh yeah, I might do that, I gotta do that. How can we book you? Let's let, we gotta get people in there. Come on, we. I know you. I know we gotta get you. We gotta get this man paid. And get everybody else paid. What, what can we do? How how can we contact you? How can we be on your hotline? Well, for appointments, you can call my office and talk to my beautiful secretary, Wilma, as 443-200-3251. Obviously, you can contact me. Send me messages or questions on Instagram. That's Mister Pro. And then you can also email me at twhite at v as in victor, v as in boy, s as in sam, accounting.com, or go to my website, vbstax.com. And what do you say to the people who wait to the last minute to do taxes? Would you, would you say it's not really a good thing this year to do that? Get in <laughs> early and get in often is what I'm going to tell people this year. Get in, get your taxes filed. There's a lot. So there, there's going to be some backups with your account, okay? 
your tax professional and your accountant, they're going to be backed up a little bit this year because there's so many changes. So it ain't going to be like, oh, I'm just going to jump. So be patient, but get your stuff in early. Let them look at your situation. Let them look it over. Make sure you don't qualify for something else. But get in early, get in often this year. It's going to be because it's shorter this year. We got we, we got two months in, in three days this year where I, we usually have a good three months. So, you know, we, we, we got shorter this year. Tax professionals are not going to extend taxes. The deadline is April 15th. Okay, so get your stuff in there. Let your tax, give them a couple extra days to get it done. But get in there, book your appointments right away. All right, all right. You, hear, you heard it here, folks. The No Books of Dark podcast, we bringing in the professionals in here. The professionals. Don't play with your money. I know some of y'all are ready for that tax return because you know what? Summer coming around. I know everybody went on that, that vacation. I know they I know y'all want to. All right, folks. And we'll be right back after these messages. This portion of the episode is sponsored by Fountain Studio Shop. Looking for unique gifts curated by an artist? Shop online at foundstudioshop.com and explore a delightful selection of gifts for all of life's occasions. Handmade jewelry, ceramics, cards, and more. Or pamper yourself or your loved ones with the candles, gift boxes, and locally made bath and body products. All of this and more is available for shipping or local pickup at Red Canoe Cafe in Northeast Baltimore. Browse whenever the mood strikes at foundstudioshop.com. And folks, we are back for the main event. And uh, again, I'm, we're celebrating Black History Month. And I'm so excited to have this next guest on. Uh, this guy is doing big things in the industry, folks. Big things. You know, there's so many podcasters out there that you know we want to get to there. We want we want to be signed. We want to do things. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. And this brother that I'm, I'm bringing on, I think, is very important for us to understand the journey, how you get there, and. Um, you know, before Mr. Carl Scott, I'm going to give you a breakdown, Mr. Carl Scott, real quick. Okay, folks, an audio file by nature. Carl's path to career in media media has been certitious one after receiving a degree in interactive multimedia from Columbia College, Chicago. Carl worked for several years designing, developing, and programming web features from a range of clients, including Esquire, L, Critchie's Auction House, Black Girls Rock, International Masters Publishers, in ASCAP, and in his spare time, he'd been contributing to fledging Chicago-based internet radio show at the invitation of a friend. As he began to expand and hone his audio and storytelling chops, he accepted the opportunity to work as a mobile facilitator for StoryCorps, the national renowned oral history project featured regularly on national public radio. He packed his bags and traveled through half a dozen states, interviewing, recording, archiving, and stories of everyday Americans. On this journey, he performed one of his final interviews with prize-winning historian John Hope Franklin, recorded not long before his untimely passing. After that faithful year, Carl went to produce shows on public radio, exchange in conjunction with Black Public Media, FKA, the National Black Program Consortium, and wrote and produced three-hour-long documentaries, New York Public Radio, WNYC, and WQXR. In 2008, he teamed up with the award-winning film, the, theaters act, the theater actor Harry Lennox designed Lennox's directional debut for the stage of Small Oak, Tree Runs Red. Currently, Carl serves as the head of content, the Players Tribune, where he oversees all podcasts and video and editorial written content for this new media sports company, a first-person athlete story outlet founded by Hall of Fame baseball player Derek Jeter. 
Among the shows Carl has executive produced, wildly popular is basketball podcast Knuckleheads, Quentin Richardson and Darius Miles. Folks, welcome, Mr. Carl Scott. Thank you, sir, for coming on the show. Thank you, brother. I very, very much appreciate it, man. I know that was a little, little long-winded on the, on the, on the intro, but I, I very much appreciate it. You know, uh, we need to give, uh, as the young people say, we got to give you your flowers. As <laughs> people say, we got to give you your props, you know. <laughs> you know uh, we got to celebrate, we got to celebrate you. But sure. We're celebrating black kids. We're celebrating people who are doing big things in industry. And I feel like we don't see those type of things all the time. We only see uh, the Joe Rogans. We only see certain mm-hmm. Call Me Daddy, those shows, you know, those things like that. Um, and from Barstool and representation matters. And I, and I really appreciate seeing somebody looks like me that's doing big things in the industry. We have a lot of black podcasters out here that, you know, they, 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 they're like, who's out there to look for? You know, everybody's either um, a celebrity, but you know, you were doing big things and you're, you're, you're doing it. So again, excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Man. I very much appreciate it. All right. So let's, let's get to the nitty gritty here. You know, Tell us a little bit about, I mean, a little background about yourself. I know you said you, we talked about a little bit in the intro Chicago. So tell me a little bit about sort of everybody knows who you are. Um, so I grew up in Chicago, South Side. Um, you know, interested. I have, you know, me, my mom, my stepdad, my brother. And, you know, I grew up kind of crack era Chicago. And uh, it was it was an interesting time. It was you know, it was the kind of thing where my mom was the type of person she really like she worked a lot. She worked a lot. And so we were in the position where my brother took care of me a lot when I would come home from school. We were kind of what they call latchkey kids. And um, she kept us really, really close. And so a lot of that was just that world of like, I don't want you to get, you know, swept up in these streets. So we very much I, I was just kind of a very um, what I want to call it. Uh, I was a very creative kid. I was, I lived a lot of my head. I lived a lot of my imagination. My brother's eight years older than me. So, you know, there's that gap means I looked up to him, but we weren't play friends. You know what I mean? It wasn't, it wasn't like that way. So I did a lot of just kind of living in my head and being a very creative kid to myself. Um, I grew up as a very, very heavy hip hop kid. And for me, hip hop was always, you know, if you grew up in a big city, in the 80s and the 90s for me particularly in the 80s that was a space where you could be weird hip-hop was the spot where you could like draw or dance or have be a poet like that creative side was the reason why i gravitated to it plus my brother was just like an audio fiend so he had every tape and every cd like he just had if it came out he had his hands on it he was playing it for me whether or not it was inappropriate, like all that NWA stuff, I mean, fat boys, any of that stuff. I just like absorbed all of that as a, as a little kid. But then you have that in comparison to what my mom was listening to, which was very much more like soul and funk and, and doo-wop. She was my mother's like, and we're Chicago. So jazz hits in Chicago, but the blues reign supreme in Chicago. Chicago is a very Southern city. Now, Darren, you speaking of Chicago, so now you're in the music scene. Soul Train's originally from Chicago. So were you into, were you into it back in the day? I mean, because my brother just passed away. Um, uh, I'm, 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 I'm using his name right now. He just passed away. He was a big, the big dancer uh, from Chicago, from Soul Train. He's a big time dancer. I don't know if I know you're talking about. Oh, yeah, you're talking about um, 
Shabadoo, probably. Yeah, Shabadoo. So I, I, I always think about that. Shabadoo, Soul Train, where it first started. How did was that when you growing up? Was that like something like a, you watched Soul Train together or Soul Train? Because see, Soul Train for me growing up, like that was the end of the day, right? So when you wake up in the morning, it's like cartoons, 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 and then you know there's no more cartoons when Soul Train hit. And so me and my cousins, I was always over my cousin's house. And so I, there were three girls, Jatan, Crystal, Tasha. Those were like my closest cousin. They were almost like my sister. So on the weekends, a lot of times I was over their house. And we were just like, man, have you ever seen that scene out of the movie uh, Crooklyn? With Soul Train comes on and it's just like, you know, they're all brothers and sisters. And then when that comes on, no, all the fighting stops and they just like jamming. That was us. That was 100 percent us. But it, you just have to update the music. Right. It was like Bobby Brown. And you know what I mean? It was that kind of thing. It was more of that like late 80s, early 90s, you know, New Jack era. But we man, I was obsessed with, with Soul Train. It was one of the best things on television for me. I love that. I love that. You're lighting up like you're lighting up right now. <laughs> right now we're lighting up it's like the ultralight beam as Kanye is <laughs> like right now because it just it, it brings back the good memories of childhood that's for sure I'm for sure that was the thing man for me like growing up was very much like it the family is all that matter like I, I didn't have anything growing up we was for sure poor but I didn't know it you know what I mean was, so that was very much like a thing that I've always like thanked my mother for growing up because it wasn't a, a matter of of having it was so much more a matter of just like the surroundings. And as long as you're protected, you got people around you that matter. I didn't know anything about how all of that stuff worked. I very much was like the kid on free lunch. And like we we weren't, we didn't have much at all. We definitely lived in the Section 8 housing, all of that. But I didn't have a clue literally until I got, you know, left. Because when I was, I was always a very smart kid. So then I left. So basically, when I was in sixth grade, one of my teachers came to me and said, uh, would you ever consider going to boarding school for high school? And given the fact that I was my mom kept me so close and I was a pretty independent kid, I was kind of into that idea. I was like, wait, my mom doesn't have to be here. Like I can like be away. I'm down. So then I got my grade. I made sure my grades are already great, but I had to do the like I got to get all A's, and take all these tests. And all. I just I was so um adamant that I could make this happen. So by the time I got to eighth grade, I was in a position where I'm like, I know we don't have anything. So my job will be to get everything paid for. So by the time it was time to go to high school, I literally came to my mom, was like, look, I took all the tests, I did all the stuff. If you just sign these sheets of paper, I will have full scholarship through high school and I will all my trips back and forth for holidays were paid for. I was like, you all you gotta do is just sign this paper and I'm out. I found out later when I was about 20, she, my mom was like, I only reason she let me go. I thought that because I had all that, I showed all this like initiative. I was like, she was just, she was like, oh yeah, of course. Like, please, boy, you were 14 years old. There's no way in the world I was gonna let you leave. But by the time I, she told me basically that one of her best friends who's from Ghana, Peggy, where, you know, in West Africa, it's a different game in terms of like what boarding school means. And she was the one who had actually told my mom, like, yo, you need that. You have to let him go. So I did that. I left Chicago, did high school in North Andover, Massachusetts, school called Brook School. Um, that was my like introduction to wealth. Very, very, very rich people, like presidents, grandchildren at school with me. Um, and then that kind of set me on a path, went to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. 
left there after maybe about three years and I finally came back to Chicago. So I hadn't actually been back home 10 years. I really like grew up away from my family for a long time, kind of by myself. Um, got closer to my family and that's when I started doing, I decided I wanted to go to New York. That's when I got the job with StoryCorps, moved to New York and kind of played that game. So. I, you know, there's, there's a couple of things I want to, you know, unwind out there, what you just said. I mean, first of all, Thank you. Shout out to the teacher who saw that. And that's the first thing. Shout out to teachers um, out there in general. But for a teacher to recognize you had that talent, a teacher to recognize this young black boy can make it out there. We know we, we got to have success. We got to make sure he's not going to make it right where we are right now. OK. And shout out to that teacher. First of all, she saw something in you, you know, for sure. Secondly, shout out to you to getting your grades, getting your stuff. <laughs> and you wanted, you saw that foresight future. Like, let me get out of here. Let me find out something new. Let me find out what's really in the world. Let me find out what's going on. Thoroughly, how was it? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because I, I, I've, your journey is kind of similar to mine, but not to the rich people's school, but it was a little bit poorer than that. But um, a brother from Southside Chicago going to Massachusetts. How was that reception? I mean, just real quick. I mean, because I always, it's always fascinating me to, when that happens. The, the thing that was, it was great. I had a man, I had a wonderful time. It was college at 14. It, I really enjoyed it. But it, there was other parts about it that I found so interesting, right? Like when I was a freshman, it was kind of grabbing particularly like, even when it came to like rich kids or kids who did not look like me, they were coming from this space of when you get them at 14, they're still, they're not totally inundated with any of the like biases that your parents kind of throw on you. We got them, we heard them, but we don't believe them totally, right? So this was that first opportunity. And I think people mostly have this, this experience in college, but in, in high school, we were legitimately like, me and a lot of the other like kids would sit in circles, particularly like me and other like white boys at, at, in the dorms, we would like sit around and just look at each other and be like, all right, so my mom said, this or like and just literally like ask each other legitimate questions about stereotypes where I'm like I've heard you know you guys like smell weird when you take a shower or if they're like what's up with this lotion game like why do you smell like that like all oh, this whole why does your hair look like that what is like we just get back and forth and just kind of like legitimately undoing the stereotypes that were kind of laid on us from our backgrounds because we were so young and didn't didn't find any offense in being able to just kind of have that conversation with somebody who didn't look like you and you had never really seen before because I really did grow up in an environment where white people legitimately were just teachers in my environment growing up like I didn't have any like interactions with people who didn't look like me until I got to high school and then it became a whole different thing but I mean even in that regard like these became some of my best friends man like this is just like it's the, the environment doesn't facilitate anything that like creates these differences. So you don't really know. I mean, but that also like has a drawback when you get back to society. Right. So I think that was another part of going to boarding school that was really interesting to have to like unpack because, you know, once we got to like graduation, <clears throat> that's when I really realized like how rich some of my friends were. Like I didn't even really know how rich they were but then I graduation comes around and here's a legitimate difference and I don't know I, I don't want to make it like so cultural but it's this thing where 
some of my friends when they graduated like were getting bmws say they were getting these cars for graduation which was like insane people's grandparents were just like buying them crazy shit and then for me which i loved my mom pulled up for graduation 15 20 deep like they came so deep. it was so many family members showed up to the point where when everybody piled out and I was showing them around the school, people thought I was giving a tour. They thought like, the people were like, coming to visit to figure out what, if they wanted to come to that school next year. But that was like, my family came extra, extra deep. It always reminds me of um, that Kanye West song where he's like, you know, cause we're family, we know where home is. So instead of bringing flowers, we the roses. So it's when people get sick, like we just like, we congregate. We just come and show you like, we're so proud of you. We love you so much. And that just like meant such a tremendous thing to me. Cause I mean, there were kids who, you know, lived up the block from my school who didn't have that many people who came out of the woodwork to, to, to like celebrate them having like done that. You know what I mean? And that was always a big thing for me that my mom was very like heavy with the, like, I'm, I'm giving you this opportunity to go do this because you have a responsibility to come back and show the rest of us who didn't get that that experience what it was like and what it's about and how we can kind of like traverse and make a move that might be a little bit different so i was that was super big for me i I really enjoyed high school a lot i love you just made my heart warm because it just reminded me which everything it's just funny how we all did live different lives but it's so similar a lot a lot of things for my graduation i went to a private school also and i remember it's like it was only four black kids in in our class okay I remember just kind of like you said, my family was like, we coming up from, we, we live in upstate New York and I had family, most of my family live in Baltimore. That's where I'm originally from. Mm-hmm. Pulled up in three car loads from Baltimore. I still got the film. When they called my name, it was like a raw. People yeah. were, and I was like, it, it was so proud, you know, it's a proud moment because it's, it's crazy how family was, is so important to black families. I know, especially, you know, it just, it's families, everything. And it just, it just, it just, it's, it soothes my heart and it makes me happy saying what you're saying because that just threw me back 20 plus 30 years. We you know it's just crazy to hear that. And I'm glad that you had a, that great experience. Glad yeah, you- man, it was phenomenal. I really enjoyed it. And it's hard, like in some senses, it's, it's, it's difficult to do the like, cause it's really, it's sometimes it's a little more of a class thing than it is a race thing, but it, it's just like, I, I just really, really remember how, what it made me feel like to be in that situation, to feel like, no, I didn't have what these kids had, but I did have a lot of love, even though I was out there by myself, because that's other part of it, right? Like you're alone over there. So you don't really know how proud everybody is of you or if that people are like, because that was the thing, me and my brother grew up, like eight years apart, he used to beat me up (laughs) every second he got. But then all of a sudden, after I left and went to boarding school and came back, there was not a friend of his that I met who wasn't like, Oh, you keep brother, man. Everybody, bro. Like he says, he's always talking about you. And it's the one of those things where you don't even, even the people who you felt like you didn't even always get along with felt really like accomplished to have known that you were able to kind of like take what you've been given from that environment and go take it somewhere else and and rep. You know what I mean? But on the other side of that, I got to say, because my mother also made sure that I didn't feel like I was that I had any less than any of the other kids at that school. When I left there, I thought I was rich. You couldn't tell me I wasn't rich. I just, I got caught up in that 
pretty heavy. I thought I, I could do anything and have anything. I definitely got a little bit on that spoiled side because, I mean, I just... My mother also, you know, you had those kind of parents who was not like your kid. So what I have to go through in order to get you this thing, that's not for you to know. You ain't got to worry about that. And so I just thought it was easy. Man, soon as I got into college, she was like, yeah, you're cut off, bro. <laughs> Don't ask me for nothing. Figure it out. And then the hustle just came out of me at that point. And I was like, all right, because I'm not going home. I'm telling you, I'm telling you what's not going to happen. Uh, you, hey, you didn't inspire. You were like, I'm not going back home moving on so all right so you went to carnegie mellon for college undergrad yep i did i graduated from <clears throat> excuse me graduated from columbia college chicago i eventually went home i didn't stay at carnegie mellon carnegie mellon was it was phenomenal for what i got it got out of it but it really was me still playing the prestige game that was not a school that i really should have been at if i really was like thinking more clearly about my future. It was way more about the fact that I had already gone to this boarding school. A lot of my friends were like going to Harvard, Yale, and playing that game. So I would call you, I was like, man, this is, I can come out of here and make crazy money with a C average. I, I'm gonna go do this. But <clears throat> on one level, it was not really built for me socially, particularly. But on another, like, that's where I learned how to be an IT guy. So I spent a lot of years being an IT guy when I left. And that was when it was a perfect timing because that was when the world was becoming more computerized. And it was always about, it's hard for people to recognize the extent to which like the more technical our society is, the more it requires that humans think like computers, not the other way around. Uh, so it's this like ones and zeros, if then statements, logic, all of that. So I gleaned all of that from Carnegie Mellon. And I met some of the smartest black people I have ever met in my entire like kids who were like 16 in college and like no social skills whatsoever but just legitimate brilliant like x-men in that way wow wow now how does it down people are probably gonna ask how does an it guy in music how does i even how do they <laughs> you know because i remember like how i mean music with sound like i mean a little different but then the same arena with technology but how does one even get transfer those skills from IT over to audio to sound and things that nature? Like, how I, that's a good question, right? Like, I think the 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 most transferable part of of IT to sound is more like the engineering, the the like ability not to be overwhelmed by the the technical aptitude that's necessary when you're like dealing with equipment. But other than that, I mean, I ended up in sound because that's just me. Like that's that's my natural state of being. Now, the thing about it was I got to a point after I graduated from college where I had to I had a decision to make. And I think most young people who may get out of college have a decision to make, right? There is who, when you didn't have an idea who you wanted to be, what path you set yourself on. And then when you get older, you understand a little bit more about yourself, what path you want to be on. Now, whether or not those are the same thing, some people it is like you figured it out early and you was on the path and you doing it. But for me, it became a, a point in time in my life where like my mom is a teacher. She's a math, but she's one of those genius kids. Like she graduated from eighth grade when she was 12 from high school. When she was 16. She, my mother's like a math genius in that way. So I came, my, I, I had my mother wanted me to be a professional. She wanted me like this, like, because I did, I had this aspirations to be an architect and like, you know, you want, she wanted me to be in, in that space. Like, here's your job. You had this job forever. And the thing also about my family in general, they're creatives. Like 
the the heirloom in my family is uh fashion so my mom was a seamstress my grandmother was my all the women passed that down my mother has like a hundred year old sewing machine in her house like which is just an heirloom so that was a skill set but when I saw my mother live she taught and she made clothes and she was way happier making clothes than she ever was teaching though she was fulfilled by teaching I saw when I cared about when she was happy so I knew I wanted to make things I just knew that but the hardest thing is to make that transition is to decide that you like it's it, there is a world. So this is a funny moment, right? When I graduated, one of my better friends who moved to New York actually used to like be like, yo, get on a plane and come to New York. I'm gonna show you how to live in New York. I'm gonna show you how to be a creative. And one of the first things he said to me was, dude, let me say this now. If there is any part of you that believes that because you make things that you should make less money that you should be some kind of like starving artist, shoot that thing in the back of the head and drag it out in the, in the alley. Cause you cannot like, you have to believe that what it is that you are doing is of value. So it was these kind of conversations that helped me make a transition. Cause I was like, I, what, all I want to be is me. I didn't like the idea of I'm this guy in my job and I'm this guy when I come home. And you know, I, I never liked the idea of splitting my personality. I always felt like, I could just be myself. And for me, it was just being a creative. I could just make things all the time. I could just be myself. Now, I don't like, and I'm sure you probably have this same thing. If you grow up in an environment where you didn't have much, when you get the opportunity to have, you're not going back. So there's a thing that I have also this like monetarily where I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm getting paid. So it became this world of like forcing myself into the position where I didn't have to sacrifice the fact that I wanted to like, live a nice life for the fact that I wanted to make things. Cause there's that dichotomy sometimes, particularly if you're in the States where you believe like, oh, I gotta, oh, I'm gonna be a maker now. So now I gotta go suffer. And I was never that person. I was like, nah, 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 nah. So even my transition into audio was kind of slow because IT made a lot of money, particularly at that time. So I could live. So I was like, I'll make this, but I don't need to get paid by this because without that outlet, I'm too, stifled i need this space to talk basically to talk my shit because for me radio has always been an opportunity for me to like voice myself to be very honest with you when i i didn't grow up listening to npr or public radio i actually thought when i found out about public radio i thought public radio was the audio equivalent of cable access television I thought it was like a thing where you could just like give somebody a microphone and they just say whatever they want. You know what I mean? I just never thought it was like a real like thing. So I always went into radio with like, nobody on the radio sounds like me. So I'm going to talk to the people who sound like me. That was always my thing. I, lo- I love that. I love that. I love that. So hey, we, we, we transitioned to radio NPR. Um, you're traveling all across the world, I mean, United States. Is this like, you know, you're building up, you're building your resume up, you're building, I mean, can you give the people a background how many years it took from you going from IT to, to going to travel around NPR? Yes, because I have a lot of friends who earn podcasts who are, are IT guys, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and being straight up, I was just on an interview with a guy who, um, and as coming out, I'm on his show, he's an IT guy, and he wants to do podcasting. And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to make the money monetize. But again, how long did that transition from NP from IT to NPR 
to where you are right now? Just give a background before, you know, just a quick background. Uh, it was a long time now. I did. I, I was an IT guy for legit like 10 plus years. Um, so it was a minute. One thing that I, I want, you know, even for your listeners to, to understand, I was doing this stuff in like 08, 07, 06. So making money in podcasting was not a thing. Like it was just podcasting at that time was something that almost solely existed on Apple. That was all, they were the only people who kind of had the technology for it to exist. Um, but then secondly, it was like a, a medium for comedians. Comedians owned it. That's part of the reason why you look at like people like Mark Marin and he got legitimately 2000 episodes or something crazy because he was doing it back when comedians kind of owned that medium because the whole model of it, there was no like time limit. There was no editing. People just like grab microphones and just talked until they couldn't talk anymore. And then they just put it out. It wasn't even a thing. So there was a world there where it made sense for comedians, particularly because it's like, practice it's just them getting in the dojo and then every once in a while like hey i'm gonna do this show in baltimore come through and get back to just running their mouths so that for them it made a lot of sense but for me like i did it for for a considerable amount of time so let's say i did i was probably at i graduated in oh four so i probably did four years of straight it four or five years and then i i decided to go to to um New York and try my hand at being a, a, an audio person. And I did that for a while. And the, the StoryCorps thing was great. And when I was done with it, I just really couldn't justify, once again, this broke thing. I just didn't, for me, make it public rate. It was too broke. I couldn't, I didn't like the idea of like not making no money, particularly as I already came from IT. I was like, this is not going to work for me. So I just went back to doing IT. But what my model was, and this has been my model in, co in corporate America for a long time. It was, if I get a corporate job, I look around for the job that I want, then I quit, and then I go figure out how to do that job for myself. And then I go back into corporate America because I'm, I'm not a corporate person. So it's very difficult for me to like play the game in a way where folks are like, oh, you're so good at this. Let me give you a raise and give you a promotion and promote your way internally through it. I've always been the person that's been like, oh, I want to be an art director. So let me leave and figure out what art directors do and try to do it for a little while and then come back to corporate America and then say, now give me that art director salary. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that game I was playing a little bit, being like looking around in radio and the people when I first started making radio for myself, once I had left StoryCorps, the StoryCorps was also this like lesson in, in listening because it was a oral history project. We just running around, just hearing, people would just tell stories. So to give people a bit of background on StoryCorps, the idea of it is uh, we rode around basically in uh, Airstream trailers set up in any city in America for up to like eight weeks. And then two people can come in the back half of the Airstream trailer is a soundproof booth. We'll set up in like really like open places where a lot of people come maybe in front of like the courthouse or the library. And two people can come in and have a conversation for up to 40 minutes for about anything they want. We'll record it for free. And if they allow us, a copy is given to them and a copy goes to the Library of Congress. So it's there for all time. People can lose it, come back and find it. And a lot of people, because it goes into the Library of Congress, they're bringing their grandparents. Like, let me get these stories that I've never gotten. Um, great job. When I left, I just didn't want to do the just like, let me just go to public radio and just do this. I just wasn't into it. So um, I was doing it on the side because there are a couple of people that I had met were just like, that was their job. They would do uh, one of my mentors, early, early mentors in, in radio was a guy named uh, Roman Mars. He actually runs a, a podcast now called um, uh, 
99% invisible. And when I met Roman, Roman was one of the, the one of those early people who I had met who was like, just like a, an executive producer. I had never met anybody like this who like NPR would like pay him to go like meet a group of people and make a show for them and then go on and make a show for somebody else and make a show for somebody else. I thought that was like, it's like, I want that job. That job was super cool. But because I knew that existed, I would just kind of keep doing IT stuff. And when opportunities arose for me to make radio, I just would make it. In, on, on my own. And I was also trying to develop my own sensibility because I didn't, I'm not a broadcaster or a journalist in that traditional sense. So I always was trying to make things that sounded like me. My MO was always like colloquialisms. I always needed things to sound very hip hop-ish or sound, you know what I mean? I was like, I wanted to speak my language, but I needed to throw that little extra level of intellect on top of it because I needed it to live in the NPR space. I don't know if that answered your question, though. Oh, no, it did. It did. It did. Okay. So, Players Tribune, okay? So, now, folks, you guys probably out there like Players Tribune. I've asked around people because I you know, like, like do my homework before I um, put an episode out. And I asked people, do you know a Players Tribune? A lot of people don't know. A lot of people don't know. A lot of people are not in that sports space, okay? Mm-hmm. And um, what I always tell people, and I, you can correct me on this, to me, Players Tribune, it reminds me of Sports Illustrated when I was growing up, but it's but it's on it's all it's all online, mostly online. You do have I, I don't know if you like correct me again. I don't know if you have magazines anymore or if you ever ever did, but it's just more like Sports Illustrated for the eighties and nineties. That's what I think about it when I think about uh, you know Players Tribune. Yeah, I can agree to that. I think the only like the only adjustment I would say is the fact that. Uh, everything that Players Tribune does is first person narrative. So it's actually the athletes writing the stories in conjunction with our team rather than the kind of like journalist to athlete journalist just does the interview and, and does the interpretation on their own. When we have those conversations, our writers put those things together in conjunction with the athlete and the athlete actually has final say. So if it doesn't sound like them, if they don't want it to go out, they have all of the like, power to veto anything that they desire to say yeah i yeah i was into this i'm not into it now kill it kill the story the whole thing so it functions on a different model but i think the the aim is the same right to actually like bring people closer to their heroes bring the humanity to these athletes who have these very elite lifestyles and and you know positions in society so before we go get dig into this um, I'm going to give us a quick brief moment and then it will become right back after this. But I uh, just want to give a quick brief moment for my sponsors. Hold on one second. All right, folks. And we'll be right back after these messages. The No Picks After Dark podcast is fueled by Zeke's Coffee. Have you tried their coffee yet? I'm telling you, there is something different about it. Maybe it's because they roast their beans in a fluid coffee roaster, which provides the most accurate roasting temperatures and made with love. You will just have to check it out for yourself and try their delicious food while you're at it. Open now for curbside service, carryout, and delivery. And they also do wholesale. Visit Zeke's Coffee at 4719 Harford Road. Open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. and Sunday, 8 to 5 p.m. Kitchen closes at 3 p.m. Or visit Zeke'sCoffee.com and you too can be fueled by Zeke's. All right, so folks, we are back um, for the second half of the episode with Mr. Carl Scott, head of content for Players Tribune, and we were just getting into Players Tribune. I wanted to first, before we get into a deep, I want to give a shout out to Miss Lisa. 
Lisa is one of my, you know, good friends um, from Syracuse. We both graduated in 03. And I've known her forever. I mean, she's been in the industry doing her thing. Larry King Live, everybody. NBC, Today Show, doing everything. And, and it was funny. When I first started my podcast, he was like, what's this? I said, doing my podcast. She's like, okay, let, let, let's see how long you do this for. <laughs> I said, that's what's up. I like that. And um, and then when I won Best of Baltimore and all that stuff, she was like, all right, you, you, you can start. I can introduce you to some of my friends now. <laughs> So, you know, shout out to Miss Lisa. She knows who I'm not going to give you her last name. I'm going to give her a government. She knows who I'm talking about. Um, but, again, appreciate you giving me this opportunity to connect with Mr. Carl Scott. Um, and, again, I, I want to tell the audience, you know, I, I look at this guy as a, bro- as a brother, older brother, you know I mean? Look as a brother, as a mentor, somebody who's out there who's doing a thing. And, again, appreciate you coming on the show because I think this is very helpful for a lot of creatives. Like, you, you talk about creatives a lot. Talking about creatives and podcasters, all that stuff in that, in that, in that lane. Yeah, for sure. And and I will I will second that shout to Lisa. Lisa's one of my favorite people, and she very much helped me get my footing when I learned it when I landed at at Player Tribune because I definitely landed there at a time where once again pods wasn't the thing. This was like the beginning of like for-profit companies being like, okay, I'm going to invest in this person to make some audio. Let's see what you do. You know, and I very much, I depended super heavy on Lisa. And Lisa's one of my favorite humans on the planet for sure. That's, that's what's up. That's what's up. So, okay. How would you get the player tribune? Like, like, I mean, you get there, you, you come in player tribune. They don't have a really a podcast out at that moment. Do they don't have anything like that at all. Podcasting is starting to take off slowly, starting to come out slowly. And how did you get your name? Like, this is me. My name's on this. Now people know who I am. And that's, that's years of making stuff, right? Like, I think the thing around that is just, like, being willing. Because when I got it at Player Tribune, part of it was they had, like, one show that they were doing. And they were trying to figure out. And this was also, like, so I'll, make, I'll step back for one second. Like, for me, I came up in an era where a lot of the people around me who got into public radio and got into the idea of podcasting were following Ira Glass. And so he did this show called This American Life, phenomenal thing. Now, the, the next version of that, in my opinion, was Serial. Serial came out and then that opened up this whole avenue of people wanting to like make pods all of a sudden. And I, Around that time was around the time that I was landing in uh, Players Tribune. So then they were trying to figure out, you know, how do we make our own sports version of cereal? And how do, you know, it was a lot of, lot of talk around that kind of concept. And um, for me, I mean, just landing in that space and figuring out how to, to get to a position of success I think for me, I've, I, I'm also a very like fiscally conscious person. Like I like, I wanted to do things when I came to, to Players Tribune and I decided to like do audio like full time. It was a, a, a step back monetarily. I was actually about to have a child and I was about, and I was taking a legit pay cut to do this job. But at the time the money was substantial enough that I knew I was like, there's no way I'm ever going to get paid this much to just make audio. So I had to take it. I, but for me, it was a creative execution. I'm like, I need to do this until I make at least one thing that a million people listen to. That's, that was my number. So I walked in the door with like, I'm not going to say anything until I make something that a million people listen to. And that was my whole MO. So I made a lot of shows that a million people did not listen to. 
<laughs> it was just a lot of like trial and error understanding because once again I came into the player tribune I was not the biggest like sports guy I was just a storytelling guy so for me it was I took the story core model and just figuring out like how a part of it also was learning how to be an executive producer how like one of the mentors so when I got that job I had met um, a guy by the name of Gary who actually was um, editor-in-chief started um, ESPN the magazine so he was consultant he was not consultant he was actually like um, editorial chief over here at, at Players Tribune and so we were kind of like talking he got me into the space it was great but it was also me kind of learning how to do what I do in the sports space with this cowboy he was one of the first people to talk to me about like all right this is how you executive produce this is how you get someone who has spent a lot of time with microphones in their faces like a lot of time speaking to speaking publicly to believe that your idea is the right idea is the idea that they should follow that's going to help them be better like that whole thing was a challenge i had to get through a lot of that and so then you make the then what kind of shows do you make do you make the interview shows do you make the documentaries do you kind of learn a little bit of like the business models there because docs are way more expensive than just like you and me on zoom just talking back and forth like you had to learn kind of all of the little bits and pieces but my biggest thing at the time was I am not going to ask anybody at this company for a raise until I make a thing that is substantial enough that it pays my salary that I at very least make I bring to the table the amount of money that I make after that I can talk to you but before that I was very much and I and and I'm not saying this for other people to like ascribe to my style but I very much was a person who felt like <clears throat> if you let me work in anonymity, if you just like leave me alone and I get to just be in a lab, basically like making with somebody else's money, that's kind of like optimal for me until I get good. And so it wasn't that I was not good in the beginning, but there were so many things that I didn't understand. I was not very, what I wasn't good at, excuse me, was like getting in the rooms and like pitching and selling again. Like I was horrible at that. And I really like was trying to figure out how to do that and like get the right shows in the right places in front of the right people. Like I did that for a good <clears throat> probably three, four years before I got to a position where things kind of came together. My skill set got better. The industry came around to like really wanting to see athletes host these kinds of things. The athletes themselves came around to the idea that this is a moneymaker for them. Like all those things kind of had to coincide for it to work. So, I, it, you know, it's that thing where it's like your skill meets luck. And I think that was that was that thing. I was like in the right place at the right time. But I had been toiling, trying to figure it out for a good at least three years before it came like to fruition. So once you hit the jackpot on the show. Who was the name of the show and what, 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 what opened people's eyes to what you got going on? I mean, I, I think it's two shows, right? I think what I, what I started with was a show called um, R2C2 where I it was with, and it still currently exists with um, CC Sabathia and Ryan Rucco, which is a very uh, Yankees-based pod. That was kind of a jump-off point, but where everything landed and I, I finally like arrived was Knuckleheads with Quentin Richardson and Darius Miles. Once that show hit, and after like being out for a couple months, we were already like half a million downloads, working on 750, getting that's when it was like, oh, <clears throat> I, I'm here. This is, I, it finally did what it was supposed to do. It was also kind of like to me a very early precursor to what you see now in an athlete podcasting because there's a lot of guys doing that now but we were kind of like 
ahead of the game a bit. Not totally. Our JJ Reddick was doing it before. Like there's some guys who really like had kind of put it together early. But um, yeah, when Q and Darius hit, that was it. It was like no going back. So, so when you guys, I said, well, if I'm not a sports fan, if I'm not a sports fan, I'm not into sports, but you have amazing content. What would be there for me if I was just somebody who was just a casual like sports fan, but something that maybe could interest and be intriguing? For me, it's culture. Like if I'm going to say anything that I do very specifically, being a person who's not the like, I've grown to be a pretty big sports fan, but it's very much about what makes the host relatable so i'm very much about like sports nerd stuff like if you look if you listen to uh, knuckleheads i would make the the comparison that knuckleheads is designed to be more like um it's a, it's almost like an oral history project to a certain extent right the idea behind it is is more in the world of um oh the combat jack show like i was obsessed with that show i don't know if any of your listeners have ever listened to combat jack like he passed away bless his heart like he he did a tremendous value to the world of hip-hop by just bringing people on doing like these three hour deep dive interviews about your whole life how did you become this here are all the like backstories i heard about the music industry is it right is it true all that kind of stuff and for me Knuckleheads was built to be a basketball version of that show. Like it's about the culture of basketball. It's also designed to show that Darius and Quentin are two of the biggest basketball historians you will ever come across. They're nerds in that sense. They, you can't name players on or off the court that they don't know at least a little something about. And their perspective is so culturally significant, right? Because the thing about them is, and I had even forgotten about this, right? Well, first off, they're very famous for this, this knucklehead right. celebration, right? When they were like 19, 20 years old, they come to LA Clippers and people were doing this who didn't even play basketball. They're like, what I love is that their cultural significance, right? There are actual film of LeBron when he's in high school hitting shots and putting those two, two, two fists on his head because that was such a big thing in that time period. And then you think about like Darius was like the man, his Jersey was outselling Iverson. Like, and that was the Jersey period. Like people who hated sport, didn't care about sports, wore jerseys and fitteds. Like that was a big, big cultural thing. And so to me, if I'm selling this to somebody who doesn't necessarily like sports, it's not really about, it's like, it's nostalgia for us. Like, you don't like sports and love Michael Jordan. You know what I mean? Like it's nostalgia for us because it's also like, it's kind of like what was happening when you were this age, their, their content kind of leans heavily into that. No doubt it gives the flowers to every great basketball player that we possibly could come across, but it just lives in this world of being like, we're adults now, we got kids, like, but we all grew up in this same kind of environment. This, this basketball just meant a certain thing to us even if it was a peripheral thing and it, it just kind of, it pulls people in. And it also gives the young people a, a nice historical reference because they don't necessarily know anybody before Steph sometimes. And so when you get back into like, we just did like three hours with Carl Malone. Oh, like yeah. you, Carl Malone is like Sasquatch, man. You can't get that man to come sit down for three hours to have you a conversation. It's just like those kinds of things. And it means something to the people who kind of grew up in that era. You know, it's funny. I, I didn't like Carl Malone growing up because I was a Bulls fan. But my favorite quote was from Scottie Pippen when he said the mail don't get delivered on Sunday. And that was under the finals. So I always remember that. I always remember that. Yeah. Really do that. You bring it back. Man. 
Uh, That's what I'm saying. It's just like if I start talking about this stuff, you're going to remember a game or two. You're like, oh, man, I remember where I was when that happened. It's that kind of thing. I think this show really like a big thing for me as far as like a sports podcast producer is that I am about sports through the lens of culture. Like because they're elite from a physical stance. We are we're not built like those guys. You know what I mean? We're just uh, and those women. We're not built like them. They can do some things that we physically cannot do. But when you bring them down to like the intellect that it takes to do those jobs, the nerd kind of concepts around their personalities, like that stuff makes you sit down with them and say, oh, I know you. Uh, very quick story. When I met Darius, I asked him, um, "Yo, where like do you have you even heard a podcast? And he was like, nah, not really. Like my big thing about pies, like I listen to Drink Champs, um, <laughs> what other show? And, and Drink Champs kind of functions exactly like Knuckleheads does, truthfully. Um, and he's like, and I only like where I get my pods, like YouTube, I only go to three sites, ESPN, YouTube, and Worldstar. Right. Amazing. And for me, when he said that, I was like, hmm. First off, this show has to be on YouTube because I'm making it for you. Like you're actually the demographic of the person who needs to listen to this. And if you don't actually know where to get pods and you go to YouTube, then this thing needs to be on YouTube. And that was a very like big revelation, but it was just like finding that space, even with Darius and knowing those things about who he was that made this thing kind of like land in the place culturally that made the most sense. Cause you know who you're going after. I promise you this, the first day that I got on Instagram and saw a video of somebody watching knuckleheads in a barber shop. I was like, I made it. I don't care how many I don't care how many downloads happens after this. Like, this was the whole reason I made this show was to actually like get into the barber shop where people can listen to these stories and start arguing with each other about how like who was better, who had the better sneakers. Like, that's the point of this. All not the sports, but the culture. Now, do you, do you guys dig into um again? You know, I'm not hugely familiar with this, but have you guys dealt with Mega Rapone, Mega Rapone, like any the World Cup stars? Uh, yeah. Are you guys think about having a show with them? You know, to bring that other audience in. Um, I don't like I said. How does that work? How do you how do you maneuver in those spaces? Um, it's 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 really more about like I mean, and we even did a pilot with with Megan Rapino and and Sue Bird. They they actually eventually went on went to another space and did a show, which is really good. Um, for me, it's more about like the thing about podcasting is it feels to people as if it's easy, but it's not. Like the consistency that's necessary. Like you got to show up day after day after day and for some folks you know there's a it has but it has this low barrier of entry like the the equipment is relatively cheap it's easy to shut up in your home so it gives people this i've this idea that it's not that difficult to do but for me when it gets into like moving into different spaces it's a lot of it is around the host like if i find the talent or the talent is interested and comes to us and it's more of a world of me recognizing, like, you're going to show up. I did another show before we did Knuckleheads, like a show around the finals with Quentin called um, Wise Guys. And the first, and I said this to Q a couple of weeks ago, the first thing Q ever said to me when I met him was, Carl, I'm early to everything. I'm always showing up. Like, because he was, he was like 10 minutes early to the record. And he was like, I need you to understand something about me. I hate being late. I'm on my business. Immediately, I was like, oh, I'm working with you. Because... 
that's another difficult part about this if, from a production standpoint. If the talent is not in a position where they feel the like ownership, this is actually my show. It's not the Players Tribune show and I'm on it. It's your thing. You're booking against it. You're helping promote it. You're showing up all the time. You're thinking about who the next guest is going to be. So as we move into those different spaces, it's always about like those baselines have to be there. Like like every person who's going to be a host, you got to know we're going to require a lot out of you. And if you don't have the time to do it or the desire, it's this is going to be pointless. I love what you're saying about time and how much work you got to put in to do this. Uh, a lot of people, again, think it's easy. They started. A lot of people make it to six months and they're done. Um, some people, because they know. And I, one thing I always tell people, you know, hey, Aaron, I want you to promote promote me. Okay, I can, but you need to be consistent. You need, if you come out every Monday, you better come out every Monday at seven o'clock, not nine o'clock. If you if you every Monday, if you not come out every Monday, tell the audience why. Right. Have the audience because the audience wants to know. You know. Understanding subscribe, understanding and telling the audience, you know, telling them it's not going to be here. This is the reason why we're streamlining things. Communication. And I get it, man. I mean, I remember I did 52 episodes, 52 straight weeks. Respect, <laughs> man. Wow. It's a hobby. <laughs> this is a nine to five. But, you know, it's something I like, you know, and and, uh, and it's, it's amazing that I've gotten this far. It's, it'll, be two, it'll be close to two years. Doing this and now it's catching on, like you said. You, I love what you have said in the past. You said, I've done little things, they didn't catch on, did little things, didn't catch on. Can't give up, yeah. Something you aspire and dream you want to do, you can't give up on just because it didn't happen this time. It didn't happen. Yeah. It's going to hit, it's going to happen. Something's going to happen to open up somebody's eyes and ears, you know. And you being in this space and be straightforward, I, 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 I would love to hear if the audience understands. How many people do you look like look like us and are in this space that make those decisions that you <laughs> in the industry? Very few. Very few. You are part of the industry now. You are part of that Spotify. You are part of that Apple. You are yeah. part of that uh, iHeart Radio with with um what's the, what's the brother uh, Charlemagne? Oh, Charlemagne. Yeah. You are in that network. You are in that space now. How many people can say you are in that spot where? I always tell them the, the, the gatekeepers. It's always the gatekeepers. Yeah, very I'm, few, I'm, very few brown people are in that position. Very few. It's, and it's it's and then to your point, like it is, it's pure. I've been doing this for ten plus. You know, like it really is. Like I did it when nobody cared about it, and when it money started to show up in the industry, you just I just had you know somewhat of a leg up because I had a skill set that I had honed when it didn't matter to anybody that I had it, you know, it was just kind of that. But to your point, like as you as you keep rising and, and looking around, there's very few because we're 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 cool in the talent space, of course. Mm-hmm. We're cool and then you know depending on how much power you have in that talent space, you're you're leveraging yourself as a as a, a business person, of course. But yeah, when we start talking like executive producers and you know working for some of the, the places that I've worked for and like those places and it's not I it's a it's a I can't say it's a double-edged sword but kind of right like those conversations are always had there was always an era in NPR where they were like wait we've spent a lot of years facilitating single demographic and now that demographic is older 
they're kind of dying off. Like, what do we do to adjust? So then they started making some changes. Like we need to make this more diverse. We need to change this around. The voices need to be a little bit different because our, our subscriber base needs to change because that's just how the game goes. But it's a really, it's a tough spot to be in to try to like, you know, continuously like drive to have that voice like but that voice needs to come from uniqueness but that's a big thing and I said this to you like in personal conversations right like a big thing for me is when I find brown people who want to stay in this in, in this industry I got your back because and I mean even even beyond the like representation which is absolutely huge it's also just like I've been in positions where like i I had to do well at Players Tribune because I was so scared that if I sucked at that job, then for-profit companies would continue to be like, well, we don't need to invest in audio. Like, forget this. Because there's still like, audio is in this space of still trying to prove itself out. Like the kind of money that gets thrown around for video or television, it's just a whole different thing. And then audio is finally getting to the space where folks are like, wait a minute. Is Mercedes Benz putting an ad on my podcast? You know, like, oh, you got these luxury brands willing to put dollars down. Like people are spending big money now in pods, whereas that was that was just not a thing. And it's still, when you look at the industry at large, comparatively, it's just there, people are still trying to like, can we get this to a billion dollar, you know, business? It ain't. It's definitely it's not right now. And so it's still like trying to forge its way up. So in so doing. You got a lot of people to me like we should be working in concert with each other. It feels very much like the beginnings of hip hop when everybody was just like, nobody believes in us, y'all. Like, let's just like make the dopest shit we possibly can collab with each other because that's that's the ethos of pods like you guys just like let's just like get together let's make something dope let's keep and then when the money comes in let's split it up let's figure it out and then eventually of course it's going to get big and then you know more money more problems as they, as they say but while it's in that interim stage collab man and, and try like i like you were saying before hurry up and get it wrong so that you can be that much closer to getting it right and I love, it's funny you say that because right now as we speak, and I'm not going to announce it on here that, but we have, I was, I looked around the Baltimore area. I said, we got a lot of good podcasters out here, really good stuff, really good information out here. But you guys are, you guys aren't being heard. You know, and I, and I, I'm, I have the fortune enough to get, I have a, I have a nice side audience. I have, mm-hmm. I have sponsors that will, Hey, whatever you do, we're behind you. Let's, let's make it happen. We, you've had this kind. You and I have had this conversation. Now I'm starting to collective up. Just going to use that. It works. The collective is start. We we have right now seven pods in the collective. All right, Latina. We got to you know. Lat, we got we got we 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 got United Benetton Colors. That's that's. Right. That's not the name of the group, but it's a whole bunch of different people. We got a guy who does video. We got a guy who does audio. Who does this, this, and that? They and everybody. One person that writes up as a as a as an author, a, a book writer. Mm-hmm. We have different people in different avenues. People are like, well, let's make it big. I said, no, no, no. I only want ten because I want everybody to be consistent, like consistent, coming out, sponsoring each other, helping each other out, promoting each other out, making sure we are out there together. Because let me tell you, all it takes is one. Yep. As soon as one hits, everybody, the one, the rising tide lifts all boats. Absolutely. I said Baltimore is one of the sleeping giants that people really don't talk about. You know, I, I, I reached out to local media. They're like, oh, we don't have anybody covering podcasts. Like, okay. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, um, and I'm like, wow, I can go to any other city. I can hear about the DC Pod Festival down the street, 30 minutes, Philadelphia Pod Festival. But Baltimore doesn't have one. What's up with that? Like, how, what are we missing here? And, you know, that's where coming out, I'm, I, you know what? You can force me here. I'm expanding to Philly now. <laughs> but again, it's unfortunate that we have to fight and claw to get exposure for media. It's media. It's, we're, we're another outlet that people would say they don't listen to NPR anymore. Say they get sick of their newspaper. Guess what? This is our job now to give them some more information. And mm-hmm. think that we're going forward. You know, we're doing the thing with uh, Alpha Kappa Alpha Incorporated. They want to know what's podcasting. A couple, couple of ladies are like, we don't even know what podcasting is. What is this all about? Expanding yourself, getting out there, putting yourself out there, doing teaching one-on-one courses. So I applaud everything you're saying is, is love because it's music to my ears because it's something we've been planning and planning. It's like getting that right mix. So I, I really enjoy what you're saying on that. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's just necessary. I really think, you know, particularly from um, the independent space, it's hard to break through. There's so many podcasts out here, but you got to find those niches. They, and I think what you're doing with, with this show, with how you're trying to, you know, bring an aesthetic and a spotlight to Baltimore, like that's a niche. That's like a true understanding that you got a group of people who just love where they're from. So I'm just going to bring all the love here because it's an easy way to kind of like get something started. The harder thing that always is a difficulty for me when I talk to people about starting their shows. I'm like, you get people who are like, man, me and my friends are so funny on this on this group chat. We need to turn this into a podcast. And I'm like, for who? Right. You and your friends? I like, who are we talking to? Because at, at a certain point in time, when you start to make a thing and you start to get criticism, you need to have decided who you were talking to such that you know what, what criticism is worth absorbing and what criticism is worth reflect, deflecting. Because at sometimes you're like, some, somebody might be like, man, I, I thought that was trash. But you got to be able to be like, wait, but I wasn't making this for you. So hey, I don't know if I care so much. I've, I've had that happen to me. I've had, well, I've had somebody say, you don't have enough certain type of people on the show. Oh, wow. Okay. 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 All right. And then I had somebody say, you know, and I love my audience because my audience is like, hey, I just want to correct you. you. You made one mistake on what the hell. I was like, I love it. I love that. I love that my audience is against, I, I want to talk to that smart audience. I want that audience to smart, like, hey, just, to, just so you know, you, you messed up on that one little thing, but it wasn't big. But I, I researched it. I was like, I like that. I like that because that inspires me to do better and whatnot. Yep, Let's get back. Sure. Because we could talk all day, <laughs> all day. So, what do you see yourself doing in the next five years? I mean, podcasting to me, it's 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 about to be on some different level. All right, in my mind, what do you see the industry looking like going five years down? Because I mean, I feel like radio is going to be here, but I feel like media is like we got money in podcasting. People don't want to hear certain people. People don't listen to radio in the car anymore. That's why we have mm-hmm. the UX cores, the Bluetooths. That's why cars have all that. Like, just like the CD, just like the tape player, just like the CD. Something. Yep. What are your thoughts going on with five years ago? So it's a twofold thing. So I think on one level, there's going to be this, like, we're still on this incline, right? And I think the last piece of it for me is, so you even look like Google has made this comment where they're like, we're trying to make audio a first class citizen on the internet, quote unquote, right? And it's this notion behind which everything that we have kind of come up with, particularly on social media, on the internet, is inclined toward video. But 
like your ability to kind of like use SEO tactics, search for podcasts, even just by virtue of like maybe something you heard, you just write up the sentence in the pod, we just show up like we don't have that kind of infrastructure around audio. And so I do think there is like the last like unturned stone is social media and like us, because I've said this before, I believe that the greatest thing to happen to audio in the last probably five years, even more, is TikTok. Mm. And because it's, when you think about it, it's the like closest that audio has come to being a first class citizen on the internet. Because I put it very simply, before that, before TikTok, TikTok is the first social media app that scrolling without the sound on doesn't make sense. You actually just, the videos don't make sense. You can't even see what you're looking at because it's all based in like a song or somebody, they took somebody else's like movie and utilize it. It's the first legitimate like audio first social media execution that puts pods in this like following that way you wave, you get into a space of like, now your every day is gonna have to involve me. Whereas you can kind of like skirt around me, you know, the people put up videos and the subtitles and now you don't even have to listen to them. So sound has always been integral, but background. And TikTok was the first being like, I don't even know what the hell I'm watching until I put the sound on, you know, and that I love that for the, for that reason. Um, so I think there is going to be this uptick, but I, I will say conversely, I think right after that, we're going to fall in a hole. And the whole is going to be a dearth of actually good content that all of these conglomerates that are just like bringing all the content together, these subscription services that are kind of overtaking everything are going to create to me a model of like, what sells? What do people want to hear in mass? And the notion of pods, which is the reason why pods, there's so many of them, in my opinion, are niches. They're, and they're not big ones. They're big enough for you to sustain your life, but it's not like I'm trying to talk to everybody. That's not even possible. Uh, so that I think is going to, we're going to fall into like a creative dearth where it's just going to be like, this is all trash. I don't want to hear any of this. And then I feel like to your point at the end of five years is when we're going to be coming out of that and feeling like, oh, okay, now we're back to like a reestablished business. There's a lot more money in the business. And there's a lot more like opportunities for us, but I think there's this space, particularly like with the conglomerates, with the subscription services, with this like vast IP thing that Hollywood is doing about like make a pod so that I can get like a lot of the IP to it and then I'll upsell it into a movie or a television show. Like that kind of stuff is gonna like, is, is gonna mess with the industry a bit. Like it's gonna take a minute for the industry to, to, to calibrate toward like, what matters? Are we selling downloads? Are we selling views? Are we selling IP? Like the wild, wild west is still happening. And so that stuff like reconciles this stuff, I think is going to be like, we're still on the incline, but it's going to plateau, dip, and then we'll be on the back, on the, on the back side of it. So, so probably everybody's probably wondering out there, his brother is, his brother got it going on. He got, he's doing big things. Over the over five million downloads each episode. Yeah, plus yeah. So I we're, we're that's that's total. So we haven't. I don't. I don't know how many episodes we have in Knuckleheads. Knuckleheads is probably maybe 65, 70 downloads, something like seventy pod, seventy episodes, something like that. So we're at about five million plus, coming up on six million Folks, downloads. That is downloads. Okay, that's, that means people are downloading this thing. Now, where's where's the Carl Scott Media crew? Now? I mean, you don't have the side because you're always hustling. 
Where's your Armenian group? That, I mean, that's all. I mean, I know I'm putting you in the spot right now because, I mean, it sounds like you found something. You have something. You know, you, you, I mean, I, we don't, we don't got to talk about it. I just wanted to throw that to you. I just wanted to throw it out to you. I mean, but for me, like, I do, I still side hustle. My, my side hustle, like, the thing that's interesting for me is, like, I still, to I guess to the point of even why we are talking, particularly in this timing, like, I still do a considerable amount of, um, or I consider what a decent amount of like documentaries, particularly I do a lot of black history documentaries and, and things like that. So um, I, you know, on the back end of um, some of the stuff that I had done with like WNYC and, and, and folks like that, I still like have these opportunities where I ask them like, all right, well, I still want to tell some stories and my storytelling is as it relates to what I feel is, is kind of like, in the, the depths for me, like what makes me feel very good is the extent to which I tell the stories of my people and the history of my people. I'm like, I'm very like taken with that. I'm very much in the world of like, my mom raised me in this world of like, whatever I wanted to be, she went and showed me a black version of it. I was like, mom, I want to be an architect. She, was, she would search until she found like, that's you. I don't want you to feel like you were the first one to do any like it's happened, you know what I mean? So as of late, I did um, a documentary on the painter Jacob Lawrence who did a full series on the, the Great Migration, which lives kind of at the MoMA and also in a, at the Phillips in DC. So that was a great, just to kind of talk about his life and, and what it took for him to do those paintings. Um, I did a, as, as you kind of wrote, I did a play. I'm, I'm into those kind of like, I'm also kind of stretching. So I'm like, oh, I've always wanted to do stuff in live action. So I actually did a play um with uh oh man harry lynn harry lennox who's from he's from right now what's that television show harry is on oh my god hold on it's gonna kill me for not being able to note it it's all right it's all right give me two seconds harry lennox is the main character on the blacklist okay black, I definitely no blacklist definitely know that NBC. um yeah and so he and I got to, he got together. He's he's doing his de- directorial debut on a play called a uh, um, a small oak tree runs red, and it was deep 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 deep. Uh, just a wonderful piece. So I was able to to contribute some um, audio to that execution. And so I do these things on the side. I haven't gotten into a space of like let's collab and build a business or anything like that. I'm always open, you know, but I'm also like very happy to be in the space to like help out. Uh, that to your point about like me being in this position, like one of the greatest feelings for me is the ability to have folks like yourself kind of reach out and be like, yo, I'm, I'm winning, but how can I win some more? And I'm like, hey, say, you know, I really, really enjoyed that ability to show people the power of this medium and, you know, facilitate in any way that I can, like those who really want it, how to, to be successful, even if it's just a matter of like, I'm gonna run my mouth until something just like clicks in your head and you're like, oh shit, I'm gonna do that. <laughs> well, I will tell you, you know, a uh, true story. When I was shooting up Lisa, I was like, when I did my podcast, after the first year, I was like, hey, I need your podcast. People listen to my stuff. It's a true story. And she was like, do you think your stuff is good? Straight up. And I was like, yeah, my, my shit, my, I'm, I'm, I'm tight. I'm ready to go. Let's go. She's like, are you sure? I, I will send it to my friends right now. Let them listen. I was like, hold on, hold on one second. Hold on. I was like, I was like, hold on. Hold on. 
Because then you're like, all right, she put me on the spot. And that's why I love her so much because she just keeps keeps real. She was like, I'm going to make sure you're serious before, we, before I put you in the room with somebody. And even when I met you and we emailed and text back and forth, it was a certainty. Uh, I remember the first time we spoke, I was so nervous because my, my wife was in the other room. She's like, damn, breathe. God damn it. You over there talk. <laughs> but it was inspiring because, brother, and it, I, I'm wanting to tell you this, it's inspiring that you doing what you're doing out here had time to speak with me. And that made a lot of difference. That inspires a brother to get back in his creative space, gets back and say, you know what? There's somebody who's out there who's like, hey, you know, you know, inspiring. You said, hey, reach out anytime. You never hear that anymore. Um, you know, it is reassuring that, you know, people are good. People are good hearted. They're not, you know, you, you know, you know, somebody trying to get on whatever. I was straightforward to you. He's like, listen, I got my thing. I like what you're doing. This is what I'm doing. Cool. Can I get a deal? Can I get a deal with, with players tripping? No, I didn't want, listen, that's not what it's about. It's about me educating myself, learning myself. And that's what it's all about. And again, I appreciate you taking time out your day to give us, my listeners, some education about your process of how you've gotten here. We're celebrating people in Black History Month. Black History Month for me is 12 months out of the year, every damn 365 days of the year. I wanted to make sure we had somebody on here that really that was in my lane, that was in my creative space, that people could understand and get a better understanding of what's going on out here and why we do it. And I tell people all the time, I really don't listen to a lot of white podcasts anymore. I don't really, I really don't. Um, that's why. I said, because, you know, I've like, kind of like you said, I've listened to white teachers my whole entire life. I've been taught the white teachers my whole entire life. Hey, it's all good. Nothing against it. But I kind of want to hear my voice. I want to hear my people who, who, I, who look like me. I want to know what their struggles are. I want to know. And I have a diverse group that comes on the show, white, black, everything, whatever you want to call it, because I want, I want to ask them those questions. I want to put them in the room and talk to them, understand where they're coming from so I can understand them better and my audience can understand them better. And have mm-hmm. to hear a voice like, oh, this brother, he know, he, he, his head's on sharp. So again, kudos to you for giving us time out here and doing what you're doing out here. So again, I, we're, we're celebrating you and was a special Black History Month for no picks of the dark podcast, and that's why we have you on. And I very, I mean, like I said before, I very much appreciate you even like taking the time to see because I, you know, I, I, I've always been a person, and and I appreciate Lisa getting us connected. But I've always been a person who kind of like works in the shadows, and just as long as the content is good and we are very well represented out here in the world, like that's that's the goal for me. It's always been like you know when you know I, I remember I met an architect one year, a black architect, when I was really wanting to be an architect, and I asked him why he wanted to be one, and he was like, you know when I die, you're going to have to scour the world to count me up. Like, you're not, like I'm, not, I'm not one place, I'm everywhere. And for me, you know, one of the biggest contributions that I've always wanted to make in being a, like a media creator is to like, when I'm gone, you got to really like, you got to walk far to, to count me up. Everything that I've touched, but that also includes, you know, the ability to kind of talk to brothers like yourself and, and, and help that seed grow into, you know, massive executions that take place and, and affect other people. Cause it really like at this point in time in the world for me, it's just like, you know, I, if I can just be a person who feels you're like, Oh, I can do that. Cause that's my thing. My thing is like, I, I'm not here to be the, the person that's part of even the stuff I do in the sports realm. Like, it's not about like, I need you to see yourself. We, they, I, my mother used to always say that there but for the grace of God go I like I ain't no different I'm here I, I mean granted I'm showing up 
acknowledge there's some things that I'm doing that are like letting letting my talent meet my opportunity. But come on, man, I, it's it's you know you got to like live and and engage and absorb your own personal special and just share it, and put it out there. So you know, I, I very much appreciate you giving me an opportunity to kind of just like run my mouth because. You know, I, I don't. I don't do this very often. Hey, again, I know you don't. So you behind, like, so you in the shadows. So we can do a quick rapid fire for it. Ra- quick rapid fire. This is the cool part. Relax. Um, top three books. What's your top three favorite books? Need. Um. All right. So things fall apart. Chino Achebe. Um. Fountainhead. Ayn Rand. Um, that one gets an interesting rap, but I love that book. Uh, and The Known World by Edward P. Jones, who's actually a Baltimore native. That book is phenomenal. Okay, okay, okay. Your favorite three music artists. I know it's going to be hard. Three Jesus. music artists. Yeah, I'm a, I, I can only, I only do these in like my favorite three now. So, because okay. it always changes. Okay. Um, this instrumental group I love named Kruangbin. They're super ill. Um, Prince. And I'll say MF Doom. Okay, okay. Prince is my one of my favorites all time. I saw one of his last concert in Baltimore, actually. Mm, I've never seen Prince in concert. It is the greatest regret of my life. That was the first time I ever cried at a concert. Dude. Ever, I, I cried. I was like, I, I felt like my, my, like my wife bought tickets to the concert for me. Dude, I, I would, I, man, there was a moment where I would have sold my unborn child to see Prince concert <laughs> all day long. <laughs> um, if you could go to one concert that are alive would be Prince. It's Prince all day, absolutely. If I could, if I, I'm just so upset that I had the opportunity and just didn't take advantage of it. Flats or drums? <sighs> so, all right. So here's my thing about flats and drums argument. I'm actually indifferent. Like I okay. don't, I don't prefer one or the other. Where I get mad is if we're sharing wings. And there's both flats and drums. You can't choose. If all of a sudden it's like, yo, it's 50 wings here. We digging in and you just eat flats. I'm pissed off. Like you got to do gotta Eat both. I, I, that's when other people make that decision for me, I get upset. But otherwise, all drums, I ain't mad. All flats, I'm not mad. But when <laughs> other people be like, you know, I, all I do is eat these. Uh, I ain't going. Blue cheese or ranch? Blue cheese. Okay, pizza, NYC style or Chicago style? All right, so I got a philosophy around this. So I won't go too deep into it. I'm from Chicago, of course, Chicago pizza, of course. Caveat, apples and oranges. They're not really the same thing. No, they're not. But but if I'm forced to choose Chicago style, and here's the reason. Philosophically, right, most Big cities having to go food, the thing that you just like on the move eating. Now in Chicago, our to go food is more like Polish sausages, hot dogs, like meat on buns, basically. Like that's like, let me just run it here real quick, grab it, keep it moving. Uh, Italian beef, that kind of thing. Now, pizza is the to go food in New York. And if that means you like go in some of these spots, the pizza been sitting there six hours, it's looking all dry. You want to like sprinkle some, <laughs> sprinkle some cheese on it, throw it back in the oven to kind of revive it. Hey, I don't go. But in Chicago, 
eating pizza is like an affair. It's a sit down thing. You got to wait 40 minutes for it to come. You eat it at the table. Like it's a whole different thing. And I also want to be sure that people don't pigeonhole me because I'm not Mr. Chicago deep dish either. Because folks go, oh, you just like all that bread. Not true. I, I like all those toppings. But I could go thin crust all day. I just prefer it because we treat pizza more like sacred in Chicago than they do in New York. Okay. Okay. If you could interview one person, who would it be? Probably Dave Chappelle. Mm -hmm. I'm a very, like Dave Chappelle to me, like he's so pointed in the way that he tells stories and the way that he sees the world, I find like so intriguing. And to me, like Dave Chappelle, like what people give as a like, and, and rightfully so, with, with what they give in terms of like, they give ta Coates in terms of his like perspective on the world and how he communicates what's going on. And for me, Chappelle is, is kind of that guy. Like Chappelle has, he gives me a perspective that I wasn't really seeing before. He makes things so very simple and puts them in these like analogies that are like, damn, like I couldn't, yeah. He's, he's one of those guys that I would love to sit down and like pick his brain about like why he ended up in the spaces that he ended up and, and how he's been able over the years to remain himself, remain true to who he was, true to his history, true to like the historical nature of the people in his family and all of that. And still just like forge ahead in a way that like, you know, and as far as comedians are concerned, like people just put him in the like top, top echelon of doing his craft. And I just like, you know, it's, it's, I find that dude to be like a really phenomenal human. So yeah, he'd be that. I've seen him like four times and I, I, I would fly anywhere to go see him live. He's just, he's lack, but I agree with you. Yeah. What is the best advice you've ever received? Mm, all right. So I'm going to spread this out a little bit. So on the creative side, I'll do one on the creative side, two on the creative side, one on the personal side. Uh, on the creative side, and I think this extends, extends beyond being a creative. 90% of your job is shit work that you don't really want to do, but you do it for the 10% that you've been waiting your entire life to do. Mm. And so you should be choosing the job that the 90% of shit work doesn't bother you. You can just get it done because the 10% is literally going to cover the rest. You're like, oh my God, like I, it was worth all of that nonsense to just be able to do this 10%. Um, secondly, there is a thing that somebody gave me called the good, fast, cheap triangle, right? So if you imagine a triangle, you have on one side good, one side fast, one side cheap. As a maker of things, your client is always going to want all three. I want it good, I want it fast, and I want it cheap. As a maker, and this is like physics to me, it can never be disproven. As a maker, you, your client can only control two, you have to control the third. So then if you want it good and fast, it ain't gonna be cheap because I gotta buy all the resources that it's gonna take for me to turn this thing around tomorrow. If you want it, fast and cheap it ain't gonna be good like that's just it's simple and if you want it uh good and uh good cheap it's not gonna be fast because i have to control my time like I, I got other projects that are paying me right now more money so yeah i can give it to you good and i can give it to you cheap but i, I have to like take the amount of time that it takes me to do it but 
if you can maintain that logic when you make things, you can maintain success. You just had to be able to effectively communicate to your client that that's, this is just physics. I'm sorry. Like you can't have all three, pick your two and be okay with me controlling the third. I like that. Last, my mom was like, live your life in front of your children. Do not like make bubbles for them that are like, well, this like be your flawed self in front of your kids so that they know who you are and they're not surprised by any like weird stuff that you do. It's just like, don't create bubble bubbles for them because as they get older, they're like, what the hell was this? So I, I, that has been very like useful for me having two children. And what would you say, last but not least, to the people out there who are doing podcasting? Andy out there, I want to start a podcast next week. I want to do this. What do you say to people out there who are trying to inspire to um, think that they are going to be Joe Millionaire next day? <laughs> I mean, you're in the space. You're being, I like for you being honest. I like people understanding. Like, what would you say? I would say twofold get it wrong so you can get it right and know who you're talking to. That's so important to like have an understanding of who your audience is so that as you grow, you are, you are working with a variable that is like conceivable. To me, sometimes people just make pods. It's almost like Twitter. Cause to me, Twitter is like sticking your head out of a window on 42nd street in New York and just yelling and hoping somebody just like looks up at you. It's you kind of get away from that and actually like have a very focused goal so that when you don't meet it, your adjustments are reasonable. And it's not like I'm just still in the middle of the ocean and this didn't work because I thought the first time I did it, it was going to hit and it didn't hit. But you got to have a, a legitimate like interim goal. Like I mean, this is for these kinds of people. Oh, they liked it. OK, now I can figure this out and move, move from there. But also uh, get it wrong so you can get it right. Ira Glass, if I, I can go back to him, he was Obi-Wan for me. He has this very ill saying where he's like, look, when you first begin making things, there is your taste and there is the thing that you can actually make. And everybody got dope taste. Your taste is phenomenal. You know what's good. You listen to the best stuff and then you get your equipment out and you start making stuff and it is garbage. And there is enormous gap between your taste and what you know how to make. And the only way to close that gap is to make more shit, do it again and again and again and again, and eventually your skill set will get closer to your taste factor. And when you got those two things moving, you making money. But that's not mine. That's Ira's. But worth live by for sure. Again, uh, I thank you, sir, Mr. Carl Scott. I mean, this guy is bringing knowledge, bringing the heat, y'all out here. I mean, I got him out the shadows to come out the head of content for Players Tribune, please give him a shout out. I mean, check him out. I mean, he has a show that uh, works with a local Baltimore football player, Mark Ingram. Yep. I, want, I, I, I wouldn't, I would have to give that a shout out because it's a Baltimore show. Um, sure. What's the name of the show with Mark Ingram? Uh, it's called Trust Levels. It's Mark Ingram and um, Cam Jordan. They were really good friends when they both played for the Saints, but now that even Mark's over with the Ravens, they've been keeping it up and, and, and going hard. And it's a very, very, very good podcast. It's all vibe. You don't necessarily got to be the biggest football fan to enjoy it. You, I, I definitely recommend it highly. Any new podcast coming out in 2020, 2021? Oh, for sure. For sure. We got, you know, we got a, a big, a lot on deck in terms of just like, you know, maybe moving into the mental health space a bit, um, into the relationship space. We're going to kind of keep expanding and, and, you know, giving fans 
different looks at their athletic heroes and not just straight like, oh, I play football, so that's all I can talk about. We're, I will, we're getting out of that. I will tell you, I would love to see a space eventually. And I know the Super Bowl, you can't do it. It's bringing like a Super Bowl player, uh, Super Bowl week. I don't know if you guys do that. You guys do interviews during Super Bowl week or finals week. But what, what, instead of bringing like a guest host in that grows with an athlete, that weird pairing, I think, <laughs> I think it's just weird because it's like you're at superstar athletes with a regular host or whoever may be a talent mm-hmm. interviewing, you know, Urban Meyer now who's the coach of Jacksonville Jaguars or, or interviewing somebody that's like, wow, this is an odd pairing. But this is, works because I think a lot of people and I will tell you, we can't identify athletes until somebody you recognize, somebody who's looks like you or somebody who's like, oh, dang, Joe Smo was interviewing them. Oh, you know, that, that's what's up. So, again, I mean, you guys are making millions and millions. I'm I'm a little man, but this is something that I'll, I'll always, always try to throw out there. And I'm sure you guys have got smarter people than me having these ideas in that. No, for sure. It's a good idea, man. For sure it is. I think the show that I did, R2C2, with uh, CC and Ryan, and shouts to those guys, like, kind of lived in that space on purpose, right? Because CC is like a big player, very, like, culturally significant dude, lives down the street from, like, Chris Rock. Like, he's just got a different kind of lifestyle. And Ryan is like the ultimate fan. He's a broadcaster and a great one at that, but he's a fan. So then there's this world of like getting those two together where if you just let CC do his thing and you just let Ryan become like engaged, even confused by like what the hell is going on, it just helps because also Ryan represents the fan in that sense. So he's going to ask the questions that the fans want, really want to know. Love that. I love that. Oh, I know folks, again, I appreciate you guys continuing to listen to the Black History Month celebration. And um, again, we're celebrating all month. We celebrate all year. But I really want to show love this month. You probably hear my son in the background, ready for daddy to come upstairs and uh, help him out for the Sunday. But again, love, peace, happiness. We appreciate you guys. We're out. One.